0: I was uh I was thinking this past week about um different situations in life where uh, or they have the possibility at least of containing a letdown at the end. Um, and uh you know so so a situation where there there's this build up and anticipation for whatever the event might be and and Great enjoyment of that event of the actual experience that 's then kind of followed by this by this letdown, maybe some disappointment at the end um, i was kind of kind of astonished at how many different scenarios I could come up with um, so for example, and I apologize for talking about Christmas again, <laughs> but I think the Christmas season can kind of be one of those things right it 's fast approaching. Uh, You think about uh, the beginning of December, uh, you know, filled with, at least in our household, maybe the end of November, beginning of December, decorating for Christmas, baking Christmas treats, shopping for presents, gatherings of all kinds, you know, all leading up. And And then Christmas itself, which is, you know, which is hopefully an enjoyable time with family, friends, celebrating the birth of Jesus. And then there's that point, either... Maybe it's the day after Christmas, maybe it's like a week after Christmas, that it all it's all come and gone and now we've got to take down the tree, we've got to put the decorations away, we have to figure out how to pay off the credit card from all the gifts we bought, get our exercise program in shape because we ate too much in December it's just kind of this letdown, right? It's like, oh, this anticipation building up, and it's even good, you know, Christmas could be good, and it is good, and then it's afterwards, it's like, oh, man. Vacations, I think, can be kind of like this. The anticipation of a vacation, planning for it, you know, getting everything together, even traveling to the destination can be fun, you know, going somewhere new, whether it's plane or car or some other way. Um, the vacation itself, right—the the fun activities, the relaxation, hopefully at the destination—but it's all followed by that dreaded trip back home. The the trip back home is always twice as long as the trip there, right? I don't know how that works, but it's just like this letdown. Like, oh, now we've got to drive back home, you know? Um, <laughs> something at least in our household that kind of made me think about this principle when our kid when my kids build uh, build this like fort tent thing in our house right i mean it's the fun of of dreaming it you know planning what it's going to look like running around the house getting all the the blankets and sheets and clothes pins and everything you need for construction and then the tent is up and all the fun playing games in it and reading books and all of that all leads to that what must be an impossible task, when I ask them to do it, of taking it down, (laughs) right? It's like, oh, this massive letdown, now we have to deconstruct this whole thing. And, you know, I'm sure we can come up with all kinds of situations like that in life, where it's just this letdown, when it's all said and done. Well, last week, we talked in the sermon about how we kind of reached the summit of 2 Corinthians you know the top of that mountain we saw everything was was leading up to the the proclamation of Paul in chapter 12 verses 9 and 10 God's grace is said to be sufficient for us his power is made perfect in our weakness we kind of kind of equated that with the the we we, we equated that summit with the climbing of Mount Everest you know, arriving at the point of, of being able to personally proclaim that truth is, is a life-changing type of thing. It's an experience that impacts us moving forward. You know, just like how someone, I think, when they reach the top of Mount Everest, they're, they're probably changed in some way by that whole experience. I think so it is when a person can personally experience God's grace being sufficient in their life. It's this summit-type experience. And, and if I can extend that metaphor just a little bit farther from last week, today we begin the trek back down the mountain. We've got two weeks yet in 2 Corinthians, this week and next week. My goal is to hopefully avoid that post-summit letdown. Where it's like, oh, now we've now we got to get back. Now we have to take that trip back down from the summit. It's all leading to that one point, and now there's there's what comes after that. So, So yes, we're kind of walking down the mountain now. The high point of the journey, everything that the book was pointing to, lies behind us, but that's not a cause for dread. It's not a cause for despair. And so what I, what I want us to do this morning, and, and what I think Paul's leading the church in Corinth to do, is to reflect upon that experience, re- reflect upon that statement that he made about God's grace being sufficient, and, and, and reflect upon that and apply it to our lives. Okay, we had that experience, we saw that perspective, we took in that truth. Now, now, now how is that applied How does the new perspective from the summit impact us moving forward? We we ought not be the same people that we were before we had that experience. I think you can see in in Paul's life, Paul was not the same person. Paul was not the same person. That's why his ministry and his, his lifestyle was so different from those false apostles. Paul knew something about the grace of God in his life, and it changed everything for him. His encounter with God's goodness and God's love so impacted him that it, it became the model for which he lived his life. The reason, I think, that Paul had any care and concern for a group like the Corinthian church was because of God's love that filled him. I mean, we we've went through 1 Corinthians a couple summers ago. We're almost through 2 Corinthians there's a lot of struggle and heartache and issues and I mean the things that Paul dealt with with this church it's a lot when you read through those two letters and what we're going to see here as we finish up the book this week and next week is man Paul cares about this group of believers and we almost have to ask ourselves why everything that they put Paul through why does he care about them so much and to kind of spoil the ending a bit it's God's love. It's God's love that transformed him that he experienced in his life and and in a sense as he is filled by that it overflows out specifically to his relationship with the church here. So so let's keep that in mind as as we're going through this morning. Uh we're starting in or we're picking it up in chapter 12 verse 11 and and, and just kind of listen to how Paul again encouraged the church body to consider their relationship with him in light of all that he's written, especially in light of that summit experience. Verse 11 of chapter 12, I've been a fool. So he's talking about all this boasting that he's done prior, and he says, I've been a fool. You forced me into it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. And again, here's some of that sarcasm of Paul coming out again, <laughs> forgive me for not burdening you. So, so Paul has, he has proved his love for this church time and time again, He's just spent the last two and a half chapters talking about his desire to build them up, to increase their faith, to present them to Christ as a pure bride. Um, he's preached the gospel to them free of charge. He's, he's sought to show them the deceit of these false apostles that have come to them. He talks about this daily anxiety that he has for, uh, for them and, and other churches. He has sufficiently proven himself to them over and over again through what he has written, through his interactions with them. He even goes back to when he first brought the gospel message to them. He proved himself to them then. Not only did he refrain from becoming a burden to them, but, but, but he presented the gospel and it, there was mighty works that were in conjunction with that proclamation right? This this uh, three-part phrase that he says, signs and wonders and mighty works, it's kind of a poetic way to say that there were miracles performed in this church through Paul as he brought the gospel to them. Um, when we read through the book of Acts, you, you see those miracles all over the place. In Acts, we're not told about any specific ones with this church, but we read about other miracles Paul performed in other churches, and, and because of what he writes here, you know, we have no reason to doubt that Paul did perform miracles here among them. He, he has proven himself to them. And, and then again in verse 13, he brings it up again. <laughs> he says, I wasn't a burden to you. I did not ask for you to support me financially as I ministered to you. I mean, he's already talked about this multiple places in, in the letter. It's kind of starting to be a broken record almost at this point. Paul says, look, th- this, this is proof this is proof that I have proven myself to you, that I care for you. He's proven himself to them again and again. Really, anyone in the church there that would take an honest look at the situation would see that. They would see who Paul is. They would see how he has interacted with them. And they would see God's love shown through Paul. Again, that, that's why he treated them as he did. It was God's love filling him. Uh, Paul loved them in a way that those false apostles d- didn't even come close. Didn't even come close. It's, it's God's love in him. Again, it's this kind of summit experience where Paul says, God's grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in, in my weakness. It, it, it had transformed Paul. The love of Jesus filled him. The example of Jesus guided him. And that's how he acted when he's with the church there in Corinth. So his ministry kind of flowed out of that experience, of that example. And he goes on. I mean, he he really continues to talk about his love for them in verse 14. He's talking about his next visit. He says, "'Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, "'and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. "'For children are not obligated to save up for their parents.' parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So even in the midst of Paul proclaiming God's love, showing God's love through his interactions with the church, there's still those in the church body who assume that Paul's lack of seeking financial support was, was part of some grand scheme to fleece the church through this through this offering given to the believers in Jerusalem, right? They, they say, well, Paul was crafty in that way. He didn't ask for money directly, but he was kind of buttering us up, softening us up, so that when he asked for this offering over here, we'd be generous. I mean, that, that, that's what they were accusing him of there. In other words, they thought Paul, there were some in the church that thought Paul deceived them, that thought Paul earned their trust and did all that just so he could line his own pockets later on. I mean, you remember back in chapter 8 when Paul went to such lengths talking about that offering and talking about all the safeguards that were in place? Now we know why. (laughs) We know why Paul went to such extent on that, because there were those that accused him of using that offering for his own good. And Paul made sure to show, no, that, that was not the case. Had Paul not put those safeguards in place, I don't know how he defends himself against that kind of accusation. From some within the church. It was because of those safeguards that Paul can say what he said in verse 14. He says, I seek not what is yours, but you. I mean, isn't that a powerful statement? Paul says, that church in Corinth, I don't seek what is yours, I don't seek what you have, I don't seek what you can give me. I seek you. I seek you as, as people. I seek you as individuals. I mean, that, that statement only comes from a heart filled by the love of Jesus. That's the only place that statement can come from. Our sinful nature doesn't let us say things like that or live in that kind of way. Our sinful nature leads us to, to feed our, our own selfishness and our own desires. Only through the love of Jesus can Paul say, I seek you, not what is yours. Same thing when Paul says that he would gladly be, uh, gladly spend and be spent for them souls, for their souls. Same kind of thing. It's God's love flowing through him. It, it, it's not a love that's self-preserving and self-protecting and self, uh, self-gratifying and self-serving. It, it, it's love that is sacrificial, that that is others-focused. It, it, it's found in Jesus Christ. And displayed powerfully in the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's a love that, honestly, from the base of the mountain, from that base camp, it probably sounds too good to be true. It's a love that, like, surely nobody can have that kind of love, right? That's why some in the church doubted Paul's motives. But it's a love that, from the summit, is shown to be absolutely true, that that is God's love, His grace is sufficient for us. For Paul specifically, God's love filled Paul. It changed his life, it overflowed from him. It's why he cared so much about this church in Corinth, a church that brought him heartache (laughs) again and again. He loved him with God's love that was filling him. And, you know, as we continue on, he's thinking about his next visit. I think this is why Paul is so nervous about the visit that's upcoming. Listen to what he says in verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may, not, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. The the type of gospel that the false apostles were proclaiming was one that, that that mirrored the selfishness of those apostles and as a result you know you read that list in uh, in verse 20 that's a list of selfishness all the things Paul talks about there quarreling jealousy anger hostility slander gossip conceit disorder that's a list of selfishness bearing itself out in in the uh, church body in Corinth Paul was nervous about his visit because he was gonna to have to address that. And he, he loved them, he loved them, that's why he was going to address it. He's not looking forward to it, obviously. He's hopeful that, that it will change, that they will repent. He won't have to address it when he comes, and we'll get into that a little more even next week. But again, Paul's purpose was to build up the church. He loved them, he wanted to see them build up, and so he was going to do what needed to be done. It, it made him nervous to have to address all of that when he arrived, but he would address it out of his love for them. And again, you know, <laughs> it's kind of the theme. Why would Paul do that? Why, why, would, why not just come and kind of give them an encouraging message and go? Why, why spend his visit dealing with that messy stuff? It's because of God's love that filled him, that filled him and then went out to the church impacted his relationship his care for the church i mean that that love wrecked paul from his former way of life where he sought to earn his righteousness he sought to do it through law keeping he sought to kill anyone who might dare speak out against his chosen way of life he went from that to loving the church so much that he's willing to get into that mess with them to help them see the truth and see the light when we read the Gospels, we are confronted with the love of God displayed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You want to talk about diving into a mess. Paul did it. Jesus did it <laughs> to the extreme. I mean, his incarnation, his becoming human, his, his taking on humanity, putting himself here on, in, in fallen earth, surrounded by sin, and in taking it upon himself, dying upon the cross. Jesus dove into our mess as a, as a race, as a human race and individually. Jesus dove into our mess because he loved us. It's much easier to just stay in heaven and not die on the cross. It's much easier to, you know, wipe everything out and just say, well, let's start over. But he dove into it. I mean, that, what we see in Jesus is what Paul is living out here with the church. Man, and you know, again, that love is, is for all of humanity and it is for all of creation, but that love of God is for us as individuals as well. And so we, we, we do well to study that love, to, to encounter that love in the Gospels and in all of Scripture. We do well to experience that love and allow it to transform us, to fill us and overflow from us but also we we do well to see other examples of that love being, being shown, like with Paul. You know, we see the love of Christ emulated in Paul. There's no question that Jesus' love transformed him, that he was modeling it. If our journey through 2 Corinthians shows us anything, it shows us that. God's love being poured out into Paul's life and poured out through Paul's life. So, so, what I want to do this morning, you know in light of jesus love for us, in light of the example that he set, in light of the example that Paul set that we see lived out in his life, um, I think we ought to be challenged in, in some specific areas regarding, um, regarding application so so i 've got um, i 've got in the sermon notes three specific areas of relationship that I think Jesus' love uh, should transform us, but it's not an exhaustive list. I mean, uh, every relationship that we have ought to be transformed by Jesus' love, but I thought it would be good to touch on three specific ones this morning and think through some of the implications. So, so first, uh, Jesus' love for us ought to challenge us when we think about our relationships here, you know, within our church body, that this ought to be ground zero for, for God's love on display in this world. There ought to be no better place to go than to a church in order to experience an abundance of relationships driven by the love of God. I mean, that, that was Paul's expectation for the church body in Corinth. That's why he was going to address all of these different things. Um, you know the, the things that he lists there—hostility, slander, gossip. I mean, those things might be commonplace in relationships that lack Jesus' love, uh, but those things should be scarce in relationships of people who are filled with Jesus' love. And in what better place ought a person go to find that than than the church? we live in a we live in a, uh, a what's in it for me culture right we see it everywhere that that's the question our culture trains us to ask what's in it for me within the church body this is what we're talking about now within the church body it's it's not about what's in it for me right i mean that's uh, the relationships here ought to be about God's love it ought to be how can i show that love to you not what's in it for me how can i love you i mean that, that's what that's what paul says you know i seek not what is yours but you in other words, I, you know, I'm not seeking how you can benefit me, I, I seek you as a person, I seek what's best for you, and I'm willing to spend myself in order to carry that out. That's what, that's what the love of Jesus compels us to do, fills us and compels us to do. You know, I, there, are, there are wonderful joys about uh, being a pastor. One of them is, you know, seeing a person begin a brand new relationship with Jesus. And not just pastors, any of us can see that, but, but that's one of the joys of, of uh, being a pastor. Uh, one of the other ones is, is seeing the love of Jesus lived out among the church body. And, I, you know, I'm not going to single anyone out this morning, but, but I see examples of it often. And I, I love it. I mean, it is, it is encouraging it is so encouraging to, to see people interacting. And it's like, it, it's just clear. It's the love of Jesus overflowing, being lived out. You know, it, it, it man, it's a wonderful thing. In a me first world, it, it it's so joyful to see uh, others first perspective, you know, seeing love, the love of God lived out. And so you know, I I think a good, uh, maybe a good challenge is to, to consider a scenario. If if someone were to follow me around for a month, for example, and they were to examine every interaction I have with with someone in our church body, would they see the love of Jesus on display or not? You know, if they were just to follow me and do nothing but examine those interactions, would they see the love of Jesus overflowing from me? I think that's a powerful question to ask ourselves. Again, uh, the church ought to be the place where the world sees it. The world sees the love of God being lived out in very real ways. I think it's a good challenge for the church in general, but but for us here at EBC as well. So that's one relationship. The, The second one, Jesus' love for us, it ought to challenge those of us who are married when we think about our relationship with our spouse, that ought to be it. Ought to be a powerful challenge there. I, it's interesting. I was I was reading some um, some theological thoughts last week about the Trinity, and that whole concept of the Trinity is is a complex, at times confusing area of study. It's math that doesn't make sense, right? Three and one, how does how does one plus one plus one equal one? Like it just, it doesn't make sense to us logically. Our, our finite minds rightly have trouble grasping the concept of the Trinity. And so, it doesn't mean that we don't try, though, and that the, that there's different ways theologians uh, attempt to make sense of that. There, there are there are those who emphasize the oneness of God, and 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 sometimes can be accused of denying the existence of the three persons in the trinity. You know, a person can say, well, you focus so much on the oneness that you're you're forgetting about, you know, the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The other side of that is somebody can focus so much on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that they can be accused of tritheism, worshiping three gods instead of one God. And so, so I, w- I was reading one theologian who was seeking to avoid either of those accusations and, and the way he was doing that was placing the greatest emphasis upon the loving relationship that exists between all three persons of the Trinity. And, and so, you know, at the risk of oversimplifying his argument, um, he seemed to state that the relationships within the Trinity are so deep and so unifying and so honoring that it can be tough to tell where one person starts and the other one ends. That's the argument that he was making, that there's three you know, unique uh, three persons there and that that relationship is just so tight that it can be tough to tell that, man, it's like the lines are so blurred, not eliminated, but blurred that there's a oneness but yet a, a, a three persons all at the same time. It's kind of interesting, the argument that he was making not everyone would agree with, with his argument. I mean, he was trying to conceptualize it in that specific way. But I was thinking about that and then, and then reflecting on, on marriage and kind of found myself being challenged there. The relationship and, and, and love between a husband and wife is meant to be a picture both of Jesus and the church, but also of the relationship within the Godhead, uh, you know, marriage relationship is meant to emulate that and to reflect that. And so when you kind of think about this theologian's view of the Trinity and you, you apply it to marriage, you could argue that the love of God between a husband and a wife ought to blur the lines between them. Again, not not eliminate that they're an individual, but, but blur those lines. There ought to be a blurring to the point that it's hard to tell where one person starts and the other ends, right? The husband ought to to lovingly serve his wife so much that you'd think there's no way, it wouldn't be possible unless he was serving himself, all or a wife ought to lovingly care for her husband so much, you'd think it would only be possible if she were caring for herself in that way, you know? For those of us who are married, when other people see our relationships, you know, even our kids and grandkids, when they look at our relationships, do, do they see the lines between us being blurred? Is the love of Jesus so prevalent that it's like, man, it's, it's hard to tell if you're caring. It seems like you should only care for yourself that much, but, but you're actually caring for the other person. You know, Are we gladly spending ourselves for one another's souls, for one another's well-being, does the love of Jesus permeate that relationship in every way? I, I just I found a good challenge there as I was thinking about that theologian and what Paul sharing in here. It's the love of God that fills us in that way, allows a husband and wife to interact in that way. Well, finally, the the, the last relationship where I think, uh, or at least that we're going to specifically talk about this morning, is is parents and kids. How ought the love of Jesus challenge us in that relationship? I think that, again, that line that Paul says, I seek not what is yours but you, I think there's some powerful impl- implications in that when it comes to uh, parents and children. Um, man, and again, that line is, it's empowered and it's driven by the love of Jesus it's clear that Jesus desired not what is ours, but us, right? Jesus did not desire what we could give him. There's nothing. <laughs> There's nothing that we could give him, nothing from ourselves that he desires other than us. That comes from Jesus. And so parents, I mean, we, I think we ask that question, do we truly desire not what our kids can give to us, but our kids themselves. Do I seek a straight A student, or do I seek my child? Do I seek a winning athlete, or do I seek my child? Do I seek a better version of myself in them, or do I seek my child? Do I seek someone who makes me look good, or do I seek, do I pursue my child for who they are? I mean, it can be tempting for me to desire what my child has or can be or can give to me. But the love of Jesus permeating me would show itself in that I desire them. Not what they bring to the table, not what is theirs. I desire them first and foremost. I think there's there's a good challenge there. And it goes the other way, too. Children. Teenagers, do you do you desire what your parents can give to you, or do you zi- do you desire your parents themselves? Do you seek parents with more spending money, or do you seek your parents? You know, do you seek parents who maintain less rules, or do you seek parents? You know, do you seek a parent who makes your life easier, or do you seek do you pursue a parent? Again, it's, it's the love of Jesus permeating those relationships that make it about not what they can give to us, but about them, about wanting them, desiring them above what I get out of it. And again as I said the, those three situations they're not exhaustive right the love of Jesus ought to ought to impact every relationship in our life whoever it's with coworkers neighbors acquaintances you know person at, at the gas station anybody there ought to be ought to be that uh, that love that love ought to impact all of those situations that love of Jesus is why he suffered and died on the cross for a human race filled with sinners that had nothing to offer them other than their sinful selves. That love is what drove Jesus to do that. That love of Jesus filling Paul is what led Paul to have such care and concern for the Corinthian church, why Paul gave of himself for their own benefit, to see them built up. You know, to, to, to live for ourselves, to seek to utilize other people to benefit ourselves, is not to live according to the love of God, that, 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 is, that is not the characteristics of of love as we see it in God. And so, again, as, as we kind of think about this challenge, I think we can't forget the summit, right? The summit is God's love being completely and fully poured out upon us. His grace is sufficient for us no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what situation in which we find ourselves God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in my weakness. I mean, it's not just that we're not good enough. We have nothing to offer. God, we, we <laughs> there's no, there's no argument that we can make that says, God, I, I earn your power in my life. I earn your love in my life. There, there's nothing. And so we think about you know, this challenge too. Under our own efforts, under our own striving we can never live out this kind of love in our lives. We can't do it on our own. Under Paul's own efforts, he never would have lived out this love. He never would have gone back to those synagogues where they beat him. They you know, he never would have undergone all that dangerous travel just to take the gospel to the world. It's only it's only by God's grace. It's only by God's power working in the midst of of our weaknesses that 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 happens, that we do live out that love. And I, man, it's, you know, when we are weak, then we are strong. There's always that tension there, right? It's not it's not go out and try as hard as we can to live out this love. It's be filled with that love and then don't hinder it overflowing, right? Let God's love flow out through us. We, we're We're called to live in it. I don't want to act like we have no part in it, but it's in our weakness that, that God's power shows itself. When we are weak, then we are strong in Christ. And when we are strong in Christ, his love shows itself in our relationships here, in our marriages, in our families, everywhere. It comes as God's power and his love fill us and make us strong, make us loving such a blessing to serve a god that's willing to do that in us. It's willing to take us as we are and and transform us and and that we reflect him, that we reflect his love and we reflect his character then in how we live our lives. It truly is a blessing. Let's stand and and pray to God, give him thanks and ask him to continue to pour himself out in us and through us. God, we come to you and, and we have to start by thanking you that you dove into the mess, that you dove into the mess of our world and, and our lives, our individual lives, God, it, it, it's your love that, that led you to do that, and, and we're so thankful for it. It, it transforms us. It, it changes us. It gives us hope. It gives us life. I, it, there really is nothing about us that is untouched by your love being shown to us. So we give you praise. It, it's, it's why we worship you. It's, it's why we give ourselves fully to you. And God, I I pray that, that we wouldn't just be filled with your love, but that it would be filled to overflowing. That we would just find ourselves, as we give ourselves to you, That we would just be naturally living out your love in our relationships with others. God, we know we don't do it perfectly. We know that we we stumble, we, we treat people the way we shouldn't, we, we, we fall back into selfishness and pride and so many things. And we thank you that you don't give up on us. We thank you that you're, you're always there. You always forgive. You're, you always pursue us. And God, even in those experiences, may that fill us to overflowing as well we would treat others with that same compassion, same measure of forgiveness. God, we want to be people that, that, that show you, show your love everywhere we go. We know that only happens as you empower us, and so we humbly ask that you would do that today. God, we praise you this morning. We thank you for your love, and we love you as well.